From Impact Alpha, this is a special episode of Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company LiquidNet. Impact Alpha has joined forces with The Impact for a series of interviews with people around the world who are committing their family wealth to impact investments. The Impact is a network of such families that have come together in order to make more impact investments more effectively. Today, we're featuring a conversation with Liesl Pritzker-Simmons and Ian Simmons of the Blue Haven Initiative. The Blue Haven Initiative is one of the first family offices created to put wealth to work for competitive financial returns and positive social and environmental change. David Bank, Editor-in-Chief of Impact Alpha, spoke with Liesl and Ian from New York. Hello, this is David Bank. I'm here with Liesl Pritzker-Simmons and Ian Simmons for our Returns on Investment podcast. I'm delighted to have you both with us. Thank you. It's good to be here. Nice to be here. Uh, we want to walk you through a little bit of the, your own journey um, towards impact investing. And I think just for the background of, of the listeners, let's just start a little bit. I, I, I understand you guys met actually at a philanthropy conference. So maybe you could tell us, you know, one first, you, your choice, um, uh, sort of how you came to think about uh, how to use your resources for, uh, you know, so, social good. Sure. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it helped. Um, both of us were sort of raised in, in, in families that had a pretty long philanthropic tradition. Um, and so that was something that, that, that was an aspect we were both raised with of, of, you know, it's your responsibility to sort of think about giving back. What is your impact on the community and what's your impact sort of more broadly on the world? Um, we also are both inheritors of wealth. And so we, from both of us from a young age, um, were in a very, very lucky position to be able to start thinking about what that impact would be really early on. And hence one of the reasons that we met at a philanthropy conference at, at a fairly young age. And although we had different focus areas, we both really wanted to use all of our resources towards this. So um, not just philanthropic capital, but what was happening with our investment capital in terms of furthering the the missions of, of, of issue areas and sectors that we cared a lot about. And so it was really something we both had been doing and circling around for a while. And when we got married, it was a really good time, you know, because you're quite literally joining your assets together and you're building a family it was a great time to take a step back and say, well, hang on a minute. What does this actually look like? We are both philanthropic. We both want our investment portfolios to reflect our values. Let's think about how we actually structure this. Let's think about how we want to grow that portfolio and that impact over time, how we want to think about future generation generations, and how do we want to build a team around this? And so it was a great sort of inflection point of our marriage. And one, of course, that's special for us of we're building something together and it's really meaningful beyond just, you know, oh, here's our asset allocation. This is part of our family legacy. And um, the fact that it that it really began when the two of us got married, uh, I think, makes it even more personal for us. 
I'm really taken by how kind of um, intentional uh, you you guys have been in in doing this. I mean, with with visions, statements, and very clear kind of uh, articulation of the values and and the intentions. I don't know if you have the or but maybe you know it by heart. Your the Blue Haven Family Office vision. Um, if you don't, <laughs> if you can recite it by by heart, that's fine. I also have it in front of me if you want if you want me to read it. But it's uh, it's it's quite uh, compelling. Well, actually, so the one the one that I um, am particularly excited about um, is our is our mission statement, which um, we've sort of quite clearly stolen from um, my high school. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um, all Trevians out there, you guys should be super proud. Um, so I went to New Trier High School, which is. Uh, depending on who you speak to, a famous or infamous high school um, on the North Shore of Chicago, just outside of Chicago. And it's a, I've loved it. It's a, it's a great big school um, with a wonderful history and um, public school, I should mention as well. Um, and their mission statement, I kind of think, kind of captures a whole lot of what, what we care about, which is to commit minds to inquiry hearts to compassion and lives to the service of mankind. And I've always been really struck by that. I actually think that kind of encapsulates all the things that I want to be about and that, that I want to do. Um, so we, we gender neutralized the mankind. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the one part that we added that was actually Ian's, um, Ian's suggestion, and I think is, is useful as well, is a bit about joy, um, that that's part of our mission, too, is to live really joyful lives. Um, and that's important for our family uh, going forward. And so, um, yeah, we and, and I think also part of that intentionality, um, some of that was was us and some of that was really just um using these very helpful tools that we already had, right? Like the mission statement of my high school. I've always been inspired inspired by why why improve upon it? I think it's great. Um, you know, actually sitting down and writing a vision and a mission for our family was at the suggestion of Jed Emerson, um, who's an advisor that, that we've worked with for a long time. Um, so some of that was really outside influences helping us along the way, and, and some of it came from us. Terrific. Now, just to get into the impact investing part of it, actually, one of the reasons why I wanted to raise the family office vision is you say we came of age as investors in a time of shaken confidence in the global financial system and growing debate about the efficacy of traditional philanthropy and institutionally administered aid projects. Um, so there's something about, you know, other other ways or maybe more traditional ways of putting capital to work for social good, you know, philanthropic um, uh, ways. And you guys want to go beyond that towards something that I guess has come to be called impact investing, whether it was in your mind called that at the time or not. Um, and, you know, why, why, you know, why not just give it away, I guess, maybe is a simple way to ask it. Well, I think you know, we grew up in a time when, when clearly society hasn't figured it all out. And traditional philanthropy can do a lot of good. Traditional investing hasn't been looked at enough as a means of uh, achieving positive results in society. And so uh, 
in our experience, it's important to have, just as in life, total commitment. So why not understand what the whole portfolio is doing, not just the philanthropic part that you might be giving away? Um, the a key first step for any family we feel is actually to know what you own. You know what your resources are doing in the world. And uh, we started taking a look at that and, and realized there may be ways that our portfolio was doing things that we were excited about, actually, that there were some positive uh, investments that were, that were creating change. And then there were other investments that weren't aligned with our values as a family and, frankly, maybe had some financial risks embedded in them that our advisors hadn't yet unearthed. So to create more alpha in our portfolio for the long run, as well as to bring our family more in alignment with with our with our resources, we uh, decided to be much more strategic and intentional about how we were investing. And I also think a piece of that is just, I, I think what we what we're bringing to this that may be new because I get so wary whenever people start using, you know, like, oh, you're disrupting philanthropy or it's brand new or it's innovative. I don't know. I, I tend to to buck against some of those words because I feel like what we're doing is like really methodical <laughs> and, and sometimes very slow moving, which to me, all those words indicate difference um, differently. But um, what I think might be different is just what we're bringing is a lens of flexibility. We as a family office, and people have different kinds of tools that we can use. Some of that is grant dollars. Some of that is investment capital that's looking for for-profit market rate return. Some of that is below market concessionary capital. Some of that is our time and energy and advocacy work. There's all of these different sorts of resources that we have. And what I don't think works is when you only have one kind of capital and you're trying to solve every problem. I think that's not going to work. And so what we said is, well, we don't have those things. There are lots of problems we care about and we have lots of different kinds of capital. What's the best man for the job? And, and maybe the answer might be, it's not us. <laughs> maybe it's an issue that we shouldn't be addressing um, as a family office. And so let's step away and let a different actor step in. I, I would add, though, that one of our frustrations is that we realize as people and as institutions, we're all connected. And when you act with your blinders on, when you are a foundation that may give money away but doesn't pay attention to how you're making your money, you're you're not acting in an interconnected way or not acting in a forward-thinking way. Maybe some of your investments are generating some of the same problems you're trying to fix with your philanthropic capital. So um, we think that... Uh, you know, these days, everyone needs to, to take a look at how they're connected to the world and take more responsibility across their portfolio and across how they're spending their time. You know, another frustration is that uh, people often, you know, make your investments and make your grants, but then not use your voice to create change and accept this current set of market rules that allow polluters to get away without paying for their pollution. So there is an aspect where um, if you're thinking intergenerationally, you're also thinking about not just operating within the existing framework of investing, but creating the next framework of investing. I know, uh, Ian, that you've been keen on uh, on, on transparency and, and shareholder engagement, um, and in particular around, around climate. I, I gather you watch closely the shareholder votes at Exxon and Occidental before that that uh, mandated that they should uh, take climate risk seriously and report it out. Um, I don't know if you guys were invested in those companies, but... Uh, there does seem to be a new wave of shareholder activism. Well, the vote at Exxon and Occidental and some others recently is is truly historic. 
um, where shareholders, you know, achieved a majority of the votes needed to to require the company prepare their climate risk assessment. It's amazing that it took until you know 2017 for uh, shareholders to to demand that in a majority. But it also is amazing that companies that are involved in fossil fuel production hadn't even produced one uh, that was available for shareholders to review. Uh, and uh, and some of the oil companies were involved in some initial uh, climate research back in the 70s. So they knew darn well that there was a lot of uh, their business was at risk and had their internal memos showing that they, they were sounding the alarm internally back 30, 40 years ago, and yet hadn't uh, done a serious assessment that they could make available to shareholders. But that's another example where we're seeing some really interesting shifts. What's also interesting is more traditional asset managers are seeing this as just part of good investing. In order to represent their clients' interests, they actually need to vote those shares and tell management they need to prepare a climate risk assessment. So you're seeing a shift of uh, companies like Goldman Sachs and State Street increasing the amount of times they're voting for climate change resolutions. Um, there are others that are starting to 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 do more as well. Um, and there are it's important to recognize some industry leaders have been around and are voting almost all their climate proxies and and so. A lot of a lot of the industries playing catch up, um, and uh, which is which is fun to see. Uh, but I think it's worth recognizing a lot of this isn't new and innovative. Shareholder advocacy has been a lot around a long time, but what what is exciting is to see that mainstream in, investment firms are starting to get it a little bit, where they realize that in order to represent their client interests and their long run business interests, they're actually having to pay attention to the impact of their investments. Well, this is part of your. Um, I know you guys have. A, a notion around 100% of your portfolio for impact. And, and how directly involved do you two get in some of these investments? Are they things that you know about and you bring to your advisors and, and, and help they help you with the due diligence or do they come to you and, and, and you, you, you think that it sounds like a good idea or how, how deeply personally involved are you? Um, we are quite involved. So, I mean, obviously we sit on the investment committees, both for the broader portfolio, as well as our direct investment committee. Both of us are on the boards of um, some of our direct investments. And at this point, most of our direct investments, well, all of them now are sourced by Lauren Cochran, who's our um, director of private investments. But we're fairly active in the impact investing space. So we're, we're sort of sitting ducks when we go to conferences or things like that, we get pitched a lot um, and we pass those things on to our team. But for us being involved and touching base with the managers regularly is really important. As Ian said earlier, one of the first steps we think is knowing what you own. And that's an active part of being an investor, constantly keeping up with what are these funds doing? What are they invested in? You know, if it's a municipal bond fund, okay, tell us about some of the more interesting issuances that have happened and what's happened with those. And so we really try to stay on top of what's happening with all of these managers. First of all, you know, we think that's prudent investing. And second of all, it's actually super fun. I love hearing about, <laughs> I like hearing about what you know, wastewater treatment plant got built in Baltimore or things like that. Like it's, 
it's actually, you feel more connected with the stories behind it. And you can do that across asset classes. Sometimes people only focus on, you know, the, the direct investment in Kenya, but there are stories all the way across the portfolio and usually fund managers that are passionate about what they do and um, would love to talk your ear off about what they've been working on. And so we do stay involved. It keeps us passionate and excited. Um, and I, I also think it's just, it's, it's what a responsible investor does. But I do think that's an interesting, you know, side benefit of this kind of investing is, is exactly the, that kind of excitement and interesting, innovative ideas and turned on people who are, you know, passionate about what they're doing. Ian or, or, or Lisa, is there one or two that come to mind as, as investments that have gotten, have gotten you guys going? Well, one investment in an area that we, we don't focus on as, as much, but we, we started out with uh, is in a affordable housing development outside of uh, Nairobi. And um, what was interesting about this is that there, if you go to Nairobi, there are vast numbers of people who live in substandard housing, but are actually earning incomes that you know they could they could take out a mortgage and they could they could buy a home. But the mortgage market and the housing market were not serving them properly. So we partnered with some entrepreneurs and some other investors and created a project called Caribou Homes, which is uh, building a thousand units of, of affordable apartments um, within commuting distance of Nairobi and then selling many of them at prices um, that have not been seen before in the Nairobi market. Um, so we're excited about that project and the success of that, that project is encouraging other investors and other development agencies to see what more can be done to make it easier for people to live in, in decent homes. And the economics of that pencil out. So people who with modest incomes, but presumably bankable at some level with, with in terms of their credit can then afford homes and start on the path towards accumulating assets and setting their families up for, for future prosperity. Uh, that's exactly right. Uh, the development has a bit of a cross-subsidy model where some of the, the more expensive units help pay for the uh, having a um, really low pricing and some of the less expensive ones. But overall, the, the market positioning helps mitigate our risks. So there's an aspect of the investment that um, we felt because it was unique offering the market, our risk as investors was mitigated because of that. Do you, do you guys, I mean, a thousand units sounds like a reasonably big project, but I imagine the appetite and demand and need for affordable housing is many orders of magnitude bigger than that. Do you guys ever get uh, discouraged, I guess, by the scale and the magnitude of the challenges? And, you know, even your, you know, you guys are, are, are fairly well positioned, obviously, but even your capital is a, a drop in the bucket of what's required. How do you, how do you sort of think about it at a more existential level? So what we did not do with our portfolio is start by saying, with this portfolio, we're going to fix water. Or with this portfolio, we're going to fix the housing ecosystem in Kenya. We didn't say that. We are making investments at certain sort of points of leverage in different kinds of ecosystems. But I think to put it on a single investor to try to fix or even address an entire value chain or an entire solution is unrealistic. And I think you're gonna end up trying to boil the ocean. So 
what we've done is said, where can we, where are we best positioned to play as investors? And then where is it better for, say, folks like IFC to, to pick up the ball and run with it, right? Or a larger scale private equity investor or a real estate investor that wants to expand um, into a new emerging market that has expertise to bring to these projects. You know, we can bring financial capital and enthusiasm, you know, and some basic smarts. But at a certain point, those investors are going to need a different kind of those entrepreneurs are going to need a different kind of expertise. So I think you want to know. Knowing where you sit realistically in the ecosystem, I think, helps you from getting to sort of overwhelmed by trying to solve an entire problem with, you know, your investment. So that's how we sort of stay away from, from, from jumping off the deep end in that way. Know where you sit uh, and, and, and focus on that and know where that investment sits. Um, but let's not pretend that, that we're going to save the entire world with this one investment. Um, it's all, it's part of, of a larger story. Here's, here's a little bit of a curveball. Do you guys always agree or what's the biggest disagreement you've had is in, as you've gone down this journey? Um, we definitely don't always agree. Um, <laughs> on the big, you know, on the big stuff we do, but we also have allowed ourselves to have autonomy and, um, sort of areas of focus. So, you know, Ian is much more active and knows a whole lot more and is much more effective around the issues we were talking about earlier around sort of public equity, shareholder advocacy, corporate transparency. And so, you know, those are issue areas he focuses more on. I'm more interested in sort of financial inclusion and um, how does that tie into into um, poverty and and energy access and things like that? So I tend to focus more on the companies and our investments that do that. So one thing we do is um, create moments of autonomy within the portfolio, which I think is really helpful. Um, what's been our biggest argument? I'm trying to think. Um, no, we need to think. That and get back to you. Yeah, we can get back to you. Ian, on that. Ian, Ian, Ian doesn't want to go there. <laughs> he doesn't want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> no, and and you know what? Also, like the areas that we grant to as well. Sometimes, um, you know, one will see. There's uh, well, I'll give you one. There's um, Ian has been very very focused for a long time on um, how do you get young people to vote? How do you get universities to sort of be held accountable for the civic engagement of their students when, you know, every commencement speech talks about how students are global citizens, but then, you know, universities don't really create encouraging environments for their students to vote, for example. And so there's a philanthropic project that Ian has been shepherding for a long time on um, getting campuses to report how many of their students vote and then being able to study why certain campuses um, do better at that than other ones. And there's over a thousand um, campuses now that are part of that study. And this was Ian's idea 
um, from many years ago, and it's grown into this really big thing, and then a campus challenge, and and it's a really important thing. And this is something that when Ian was starting this, I totally didn't quite get why this was so important. Um, I didn't entirely understand why this data would be so useful and um, and why it would be so transformative to help people understand why young people aren't voting. And I feel like over the last several years, I've increasingly sort of been converted to realize the depth of the strategy of, of engaging young people early and often um, in the political process. Um, and if the last you know couple of months have been any indication um, that we as a country need to be more civically engaged, uh, you know, I've certainly learned my lesson. And so there are areas, I suppose, not necessarily of disagreement, but where we haven't seen what the other person has seen in that investment or in that grant. And so sometimes it takes one of us a little longer to get it than the other one. But that's okay. Uh, <laughs> I learned my lesson. I know you guys are part of something called the Impact, which is a network of families um, moving together at some level in, into impact investing or, or sharing their their journey that way. What advice or what uh, lessons would you impart to other families who are uh, similarly situated with some some resources and and trying to to use these tools? I would repeat: know what you own because it's such a great way to start. Impact investing mostly isn't something new. It's something people are already doing within their portfolio. They just don't often realize it yet. Uh, so understand within a portfolio what's already going on that you realize is interesting and is performing well both financially and from an impact perspective. And within a family context, a discussion about how do you do more of what is already great as opposed to um, let's do this crazy new thing is, is much more effective. Um, the second piece is learn from other families about what they're doing and what and how they're getting involved. Every family will have a different strategy, a different approach. But by learning from examples of others, you start to understand a little bit more about what's really going to kind of motivate you and what's going to help move you forward. And then I would and then I would say as part of that, really join networks like the Impact or get connected with families in other ways more systematically, so you can keep coming back to this every year. It's really easy to to set a portfolio sometimes and then come back to it, you know, uh, every once in a while. And I do think at least once a year, even if you aren't impact investing junkies like we are, um, <laughs> uh, to to understand what you're you own and try to figure out how to do more of the good stuff is uh, is a worthwhile. And uh, yeah, just to just to add on to that, the one thing I'd say is is just get get started. If this is something that you have the will to do and you think is interesting. Don't wait for perfect information or some perfect strategy to be written up in some document and come land on your desk or in your inbox. It's not going to happen. Um, you know, no one's going to come up with some universally perfectly accepted, you know, way to evaluate um, the metrics of impact. Right? It's just not going to happen. Get going. Get started, and you'll learn along the way. It's a much more pragmatic, uh, we take at least a much more pragmatic approach um, than than sort of searching for perfection um, and 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 learn along the way. And that's part of what the impact is as well is is trying to create a really safe space to do that um, where you're not always having to prove that everything went totally perfectly. 
um, where there's a space to talk about failures and, um, uh, and you know, what's working and what isn't. And also, you know, as you alluded to some of the dynamics of family offices, you know, add another, another threshold for this, right? What do you do if, you know, one cousin is incredibly passionate about sustainable fashion and another, you know, family member is, is really passionate about, um, fisheries. So what do you do in that case? And so where's a good place to talk about that? Um, and I would say the last piece is just emphasizing that impact investing uh, can really just be about investing with higher standards that, you know, through most of what we do, we, we apply the same rigor as anybody else in investing would to their portfolio from a financial perspective. And then we use this other lens of looking at what else is going on in this investment to look at the sustainability aspects and see how we can mitigate risk or drive alpha um, by uh, applying, applying this other lens of what else is going on with this investment um, that may result in long-term positive consequences or some long-term negative consequences. So mm -hmm. the, the philosophy of investing with higher standards is a really healthy way to talk about it within the family context. And who wouldn't want to have a portfolio that is invested with higher standards? How do all these um, messages and, and, and lessons play in your own uh, broader extended families? Um, are, is, are, are you bringing them along? Uh, uh, change starts at home. Well, so, so, I mean, in our particular case with our family office, it's just the two of us who are making investment decisions at the moment. Our, our daughter is, um, is two and a half, and she has a lot of opinions <laughs> about a lot of things, but she has yet to argue with our asset allocation. Um, <laughs> but um, but uh, for my family, what, what is interesting, so there's a, a foundation that my mother runs that is almost 100% impact invested at this point. And that's been a combination of of a little bit of pushing from me, but then really a lot of mostly pushing from her um, and her work to get that portfolio there. And then other members of my extended family, it's interesting, I've ended up co-investing with, but just totally organically. Like we've all sort of come to this on our own without a whole lot of, of push and pull or coordination between us, which has actually been kind of fun to see. Let me just ask you whether you either of you have any sort of closing thoughts where you'd like to see the field go um, uh, of impact investing things that you'd like to, to change about it, myths that you'd like to bust? One thing, I guess, that's sort of been getting under my skin a little bit lately, um, I feel like there have been a couple of, of, of pieces that have come out really uh, railing against impact investors that are seeking market rate returns. And I just think, I don't know, from my perspective, we have market rate return investments, market rate return seeking investments in our portfolio. We also have below market rate investments and grants. I think to just broad brush all market rate investing as sort of having no impact is, is a little bit, um, I don't know, a bit heavy handed. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's one thing lately that's been bugging me is that I'm kind of a big tent person in the impact investing space. And I think there's room for all of these kinds of investments. But the people that are telling certain kinds of capital that they have no impact, I just don't know how helpful that is. 
I think there can always be more of all kinds of capital in the impact space for sure. Um, but different, different profit seeking, whether it's market rate or below market rate, there's, there's room for all of them in the ecosystem. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's my little rant about that. We call that, we, we call that impact alpha and Ian, you talked about the alpha earlier, then you can take that edge or insight, um, either as in, in financial returns, because you're into some market or, or sector or geography that, um, you know, needs, needs capital and, and, and thus offers certain kinds of opportunities, or you can take it obviously in outsized impact because you're, you know, making a, a big difference with you, with your investments. So, um, or both at the same time, or both at the same time is the cake and eat that, it that, too. Uh, like, and, it's an either or, like in many cases, you actually, you achieve, an outsized impact with an outsized return because you're you're really creating dramatic expansion in a company that has a superior product that serves people better. So the idea of this trade-off is actually the myth, I think one of the primary myths you'd like to bust. Um, I think sometimes there's a trade-off, but not are, always. In some industries there's trade-offs, but it's not inherent to impact investing. Yes. It depends on the sector and on the kind of investment you're in. All right, now we're, so, now we're getting the debate between you guys. <laughs> that's right. so it's, like many impact investing discussions, this one could go on for quite a while. <laughs> and uh, I've, I've really enjoyed this and I hope we can uh, do this again. Um, but let's, uh, let's leave it there. And I thank both of you uh, uh, for, for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks. That's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. This episode is part of a special collaboration with The Impact, a network of families that have come together in order to make more impact investments more effectively. Learn more at theimpact.org. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe wherever you get podcasts these days and tell others about it by leaving a rating and comment. For more on impact investing, be sure to subscribe to Impact Alpha's daily email newsletter at impactalpha.com. Thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. Thanks, Isaac. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. Thanks for listening to Returns on Investment. We look forward to speaking again soon.